This is your host, Casey Deshock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. This is episode five. Welcome to Alaska Conversations. Today, my guest is Brad Keithley. He is the Managing Director of Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. Brad has 35 years experience as an executive lawyer, consultant, writer, educator, and uh, has published through numerous publications throughout the state. He has also served on numerous boards, including uh, Institute of the North. Brad, welcome to Alaska Conversations. Casey, thanks for having me today. It's It's a pleasure to join you. All right, you run, you have your own podcast, you have, uh, you you publish numerous papers, and I think you correspond through numerous different boards, also advising, uh, advising the legislature, and you mainly focus on two things uh, so far that I've seen, oil and gas and the budget, and today we're primarily looking at talking about the budget. So um, do you have anything else if for as far as an introduction goes or, or things that you've worked on? No, I think you've uh, you've captured it. I, the budget issues have been a focus of mine since oh around 2010, 2011. I read a series of papers that uh, Scott Goldsmith, who was then with the University of Alaska Anchorage Institute of Social and Economic Research, what we sometimes refer to as ICER, read a series of papers that Scott had done talking about uh, sustainable budgets. Scott, even back then. Uh, was concerned about the direction the state was headed in uh, in terms of spending levels uh, relative to uh, uh, revenue levels, projected revenue levels, and wrote what I think are still sort of the the baseline papers for understanding Alaska's fiscal situation. Uh, That got me going, um, started me focusing on uh, fiscal issues, and uh, that's probably been uh, my primary focus uh, uh, professionally since that since that point. The Alaska budget heavily relying on oil. Most of the people that are going to listen to this podcast understand that. Um, what they may not recognize is how much the spending really increased through the mid two thousands. That's probably about the time that you started looking at it. Short shortly after the passing of Aces, and uh, the budget, the revenue rising as high as it did, especially based on one hundred and forty dollar oil. So that's that's where you started to notice the uptick. We've had other instances in the state history where revenues have been very low or spending has been higher. You know, through the mid 80s, we had the same problem. However, production numbers were much different than they are today. And so that's probably led to the problem that we're seeing. What are our numbers right now? Or where are we looking at for a problem with our budget and our deficit spending in the last decade? Uh, well, you've got it exactly right. Uh, in the mid-2000s, as oil prices uh, started to recover, but but as Alaska took more of the oil revenues through ACES, revenues built up rather quickly. Uh, in the early 2010s, 2010s, uh, revenues went from about $5.8 billion in fiscal year 2010 to, to $10 billion by fiscal year 2012. And we're talking about state revenues. We're not. I don't. I don't include federal revenues in those numbers. We're talking about what's typically referred to as state unrestricted general funds. So we went to ten billion dollars by fiscal year 2012, and then we started. As oil prices plunged, we started going deeper and deeper off the cliff, if you will. Uh, we were about at 7.6 billion in 2013. By 2016, we were down to 1.3 billion. Again, compared to a high of ten billion in 2012, and and they've come back up since uh, some since then, particularly since we've started using a portion of the permanent fund earnings stream, uh, the earnings stream off the permanent fund. 
diverting that to state revenues. After accounting for the statutory PFD, we're now at about $3.4, $3.5 billion the last, uh, last couple of years. So it's been a roller coaster in, in terms of revenues. And as you said, uh, spending has sort of followed that roller coaster. We went from $5 billion roughly spending in fiscal year 2010 up to as much as $7.8 billion in 2013. And we've come off that peak, uh, but we've not come off that peak uh, at the same rate that revenues have dropped. And as a result, uh, since 2013, we've been running uh, huge deficits, the cumulative deficit across uh, since 2013 uh, has been about $12 billion. So peaks, uh, peaks both in revenue and spending, but as we, as, as revenues dropped, uh, spending didn't drop as much and, uh, and we've been running deficits. And we had, so we had the constitutional budget reserve, some other funds that we could use in order to stem some of the bleeding from, from the falling production and prices. We are almost at the end of that road, aren't we? We are. We, so we've used basically four different uh, fiscal reserves during this process. One is the, the statutory budget reserve, which was established in the late 2000s, 2008, I think, 2007 or 2008. And we have put about 4 to $5 billion into the statutory budget reserve. We drained that back out. We've used the constitutional budget reserve, uh, which has, had built up over time. And, and had been used before, but had been repaid by about 2008. And we've, we've virtually drained all of that. We're down to less than $2 billion in that. And then we have used uh, the permanent fund dividend. We've essentially taxed the permanent fund dividend to provide additional revenues over on the government side. And, and the fourth is we've used a portion of the permanent fund earnings stream. Uh, the Governor Hammond at the time, time of the establishment of the permanent fund dividend and the, and the permanent fund visualized could be used for government, and we've used a portion of that earnings stream uh, as well. Those four, even when, even when you combine all four of those, we've still, we're still in, frankly, fair, uh, terrible fiscal shape as we come into the, into the 2020s. We've, we've drained the SBR virtually entirely. We've drained almost all of the CBR Permanent fund dividends been cut since 2016, and we are uh, using a portion of the earnings stream to to help fund government now. The permanent fund dividend being cut, we'll talk about that <clears throat> coming up shortly. Just just to put some context on on these numbers that you're talking about, Brad, is following 1986, there was a period of pretty low oil prices. Our production numbers were enormous; they were still well into you know just under two million, one and a half million barrels per day. There was an entire decade of the 1990s with fairly low oil prices. Towards the turn of the millennium, we were talking about getting rid of the permanent fund dividend. We there was a Alaska had a vote on it. We were talking about taxes, and then then the people voted. We moved towards the middle of the 2000s war in the Middle East, and prices shot up. And we still had enough production that we saved ourselves, which you've already covered. I hear a lot of people expecting something similar to happen as far as either production or price. And the two thing, two points I want to make and, and see what you think about this is, number one, a lot of the production that we are seeing growth is going to be in NPRA or potentially NWAR or Outer Continental Shelf where those barrels don't replace Prudhoe barrels barrel for barrel because there's a different royalty structure. And number two, we just saw what happened in the Middle East and because of the shale revolution in the United States, the chances of a huge price swing to the upside are a lot lower than they were even 15 years ago. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that's, I, I think everything you just said is accurate. The best place that I go to look at revenue forecasts is the 10-year plan that the Department of Revenue and the Office of Management and Budget put out Every year, as part of the budget cycle, the Department of Revenue comes out with a revenue forecast in the both the fall and the spring, but the major ones in the fall, and that's that's before the budgets, shortly before the budgets uh, uh, put out, and then OMB incorporates that revenue forecast and puts a, a spending forecast with it uh, at the time that the that the budget's issued. 
both of those are are saying that revenues over the course of the coming decade uh, essentially stay uh, flat traditional revenues and the reason for that is is sort of what you just described one is it does predict some production growth uh, but that production growth is offset by uh, production declines in the existing uh, fields in Prudhoe and Kaparik. Um and so you have some production growth, but but it's not as much as you know just saying oh we got all these new fields. You just layer that on top. You have to you have to account for the fact that the traditional fields or the legacy fields are are tapering off. And you're exactly right that there is uh, that is coming increasingly from federal lands or from native lands. ASRC owns some some of the uh, lands that new production is coming from, and the state doesn't get the royalty revenue from those uh, in the same degree that it has uh, has from from Prudhoe, from the from the state lands. And you're also right about price. The marginal cost, the marginal source of supply in the world today is U.S. shale, and so what's really setting the price is is the cost of production that marginal cost of production from shale, every time the price sort of spikes above $65, which is generally the marginal cost of production for shale, uh, it comes right back down uh, to that level uh, because the shale producers essentially respond by saying, oh, we'll sell, we'll sell more uh, to, to offset that production that may potentially be taken off someplace else, and we're willing to sell it for Sixty-five dollars, so or, or, or in, in that in that in that range. So you have you have essentially that cap on price that we're seeing now, and the expectation is that cap sort of continues uh, over the next decade. So you you got it right. Increasing production from some areas, in part offset by falling production, in part uh, the revenues from that offset by a different royalty structure, um, and price essentially capped by the marginal cost of production of, of shale throughout the entire period. Well, I don't I don't give quite as much credence to the 10-year revenue forecast and I know that you do and we'll talk about that shortly. Mainly I don't I don't have a lot of trust in the ability of us to forecast or to predict what's going to happen. And if you look historically most of our revenue forecasts and price forecasts have been quite quite a bit off. It is probably the best document that we have as a planning document, but I don't think I don't think that they're very accurate, but you talked about the, the four pots of money that we have to cover the budget. We've determined that, okay, the budget problem is coming to a head. We're not going to be able to do anything else about it. We're going to run out of money to uh, basically put a Band-Aid on everything. So one side would say, why not Why not tap that permanent fund dividend? Isn't it just free money anyways? Isn't that the best way to go about it? Drive that thing down to zero and then and then move forward from there. Yeah, that's – I. <laughs> For those who've read my writing, that's certainly not not the position I take. Alaska is unique uh, among the U.S. oil producing states uh, in this respect. In the lower 48, most of the production comes from uh, private sources, uh, private lands, and the owners of those private lands get a portion of the oil revenue in the form of royalties that are paid to the private owners. And there have been studies about about the effect of of that income to the private landowners on the local economies, and it's uh, it's a fairly strong, uh, fairly strong has a fairly strong effect. Alaska doesn't have private land production as a result of the Statehood Act. The the minerals are held in the name of the state, and so we don't have the same sort of naturally occurring private revenue stream off of the oil revenues that occurs in the lower 48. Governor Hammond, I think, was a genius at this, uh, and in the early 1980s established the permanent fund dividend, which generates, which essentially is Alaska's royalty system, and generates into the private sector, or, or puts into the private sector a portion of the uh, a portion of those oil revenues in the same way that that occurs in the lower 48 through. Uh, through uh, uh, leases and, and royalty, because uh, Alaska views the minerals as being held by the state, those mineral those royalties uh, distributed into the private sector uh, are distributed to all Alaskans, uh, all owners, 
in, in the form of PFDs rather than going to select uh, a select group, as occurs in the lower 48, those who, who own the uh, those who own the, the mineral interest uh, in, in, a, in a private way. And I think from, a, from the Alaska standpoint, that broadens the effect that we see on the private sector, that we see in the Alaska private sector, that, uh, that, that occurs in the 48, uh, lower 48. So what, that, what the PFD does is make Alaska, the Alaska economy, the Alaska private sector look a lot more than a lot, a lot more like Texas or Oklahoma or Louisiana uh, in terms of a portion of those revenues coming into the private sector than uh, than 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 what would otherwise occur if all those revenues went into the government sector. Alaska would look a lot more like Azerbaijan or Angola or or some some country that that takes all of those oil revenues and puts it into the public sector and lets government decide where those revenues do, uh, go the pfd that's what that's what that's what would occur if if we didn't establish something like the pfd that puts a portion of those revenues into the private sector and so that's that's really creating uh the the revenues uh that, that's really creating a similarity to the lower 48 i i don't i, I don't view and i know uh, my friends in the lower 48 don't view oil royalties going to the private sector in the lower 48 as free money. I can't tell you how many, I mean, some, some people could say that. I can't tell you how many people when I was in practice in the lower 48 that came into my office or came into offices of, of other lawyers and said, oh my gosh, they found oil on my land. I'm going to get all this revenue. Nobody said, oh, that's free money. You, you, that should go to the state. It was recognized as free money coming from a resource, natural resource, that uh, that should go into the private sector, and and that's all we're that's all we're doing up here through the through the PFD. I, I don't think of it as free money. I think of it as as revenue coming into the private sector from from the commonly held oil resource in the same way that I think uh, think of uh, the revenue from leases and royalties going into the private sector in the lower forty eight. There is the one difference um, from a mineral rights perspective is. I agree with you 100% on, on what you're saying, Brad, outside of it, it, it's the price of the permanent fund dividend check is not reflective of what we would think of as a normal mineral owner. So a normal mineral rights owner would would not have the same, the, the PFD check would not be as large as, as it is today. And 15 or 20 years ago, the check would have been a lot larger than what we received. So, you know, it's not an exact match. But when we look at the permanent fund dividend check, I think Jay Hammond was also extremely, had a lot of foresight saying, if we don't have this, or if we give some of the choice to the residents, then the actual permanent fund itself will grow to a size large enough to be able to help support government in the future. I don't know if you've noticed anything in Texas. What I do know is the legacy fund in North Dakota, just something I looked at. When the Bakken really blew up, they decided to begin a legacy fund without a permanent fund dividend check. And it took only a couple of years before it was determined that that legacy fund was really uh, not being very effective. It could go to offset school costs. It could go to offset infrastructure. And that really some of that money should be going back into, should be being spent on infrastructure. Well, but, but North Dakota, most of the acreage in North Dakota is privately held. So the legacy fund you're talking about was created out of the, uh, largely out of production tax, severance tax in North yeah, Dakota. It wasn't created. Yeah, absolutely. It, it wasn't created out of out of a diversion of what otherwise would have gone into the private sector. Let, let, let me mention one thing about about your point. I, I see your point about the, um, the that it's an indirect payment to to the private sector. I had again when I was in the lower forty eight. I had clients who set up investment funds, and the dividend check went into the investment fund, was managed as an investment fund, and then the payments that that my clients received came out of that investment fund. And that's essentially what we're doing here. Basically, what we're doing is we're taking the private sector's portion of the uh, of the mineral wealth or the mineral revenues, putting it into an investment fund, the permanent fund, and then distributing the the proceeds, the income stream that's coming off that investment fund. So it's not it's not the common way to do it in the lower forty eight, but it's not an unheard of way uh, to do it in the lower forty eight. Okay. And again, uh, it's just a way of distributing, in in some fashion, distributing the revenues. 
from the mineral wealth to uh, to the to the private sector to individual owners. It's an interesting view to, to look at it that way with our economy and how the how the royalties would be distributed that way. I know that you've used that, talked to the legislature about that, talked to other people about. It. Is anybody very receptive to that? Do you think in Juno that that's that's the way that they view the permanent fund right now or the dividend itself? Well, I think I think there's some that do. I think the majority, as we've seen since 2016, I think the majority uh, uh, views it more as uh, as as government fund. To, to me, to me, basically, the way that Hammond set this up with the investment fund, it's like the state was viewed as as your investment advisor or as your broker. The state made the investments, and the state was responsible for administering those investments, and then passing the the earnings stream off those investments uh, direct uh, to the to the mineral interest owners to the to the private sector. Basically, in in some way, I view that what the state's doing here uh, is 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 the equivalent of your broker for your investment fund. Your broker saying, "Oh, I need a portion of that money. I'm not going to give it to you. I'm going to divert it to, divert it over to to the purposes that I, the broker." Need and I'm gonna and I'm gonna give you less. The broker in this instance is the government, though, and the government's saying, "Oh my gosh, we don't want to, we don't want to cut spending. We need revenues to support this." And hey, we got all this money that's going through our fingers, otherwise headed under statute, otherwise headed to the private sector. We're just going to take a portion of it on its way by and divert it over to uh, divert it over to to government. I, I think it's been, I, I think the the view by many by 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 those in Juno who have who have supported cutting the PFD is uh, is it, it, as this money goes by, we ought to take it and use it as opposed to letting it distribute into the private sector. I think that's wrong. I think it's the equivalent, the economic equivalent of a tax. But there are those who, who certainly take that view. Well, and with it being a tax, you can have a regressive tax, flat tax. You could have a progressive tax. And I find it, and you, you mentioned this a lot, especially on any of your podcasts, any of these other things, the regressivity of this tax is striking how regressive this is as a tax. And it's also striking how absent anybody is of, of talking about where the where the burden of cutting the permanent fund dividend falls. Right. So the regressivity, for those not familiar with the term, a regressive tax is one that takes more as a percent of income from from middle and lower income families. So if you've got income in the middle income, it takes it takes a higher percent of your income than it does from the top 20 percent or, or those higher up the, the income stream. And and if you look at virtually any day, you look at stuff that I that I post, you can see that I that I'm using the chart that shows the breakdown of the percent of income that's being taken through PFD cuts by income bracket, and it's, and it's taking a huge percentage, much higher percentage, depending upon the size of the PFD cut, as much as 25% of the income of the lower income brackets and taking you know, 0.2% of the income of the up, upper income brackets, hugely, hugely regressive. Yeah, it's, I, I think it's striking. I agree with you, Casey. I think it's striking that people don't want to talk about that. I mean... ICER has has uh, has in in a study that it did in, in 2016, ICER has said that the PFD cuts have the largest adverse impact on the overall Alaska economy and on Alaska families of any of the revenue options. And people in Juneau will talk about the ICER study, but they'll talk about other parts and they'll never talk about the regressivity or the adverse impact it has on the uh, on, on the on Lower middle and lower income Alaska families and on the Alaska economy, I, they, they don't have a good answer to that, so they just ignore it because they want to take the money and they just you know they, they just don't want to deal with that issue, so they just uh, ignore it. And to some degree, I think it's been a failure of the Alaska press not to push them on that issue. The Alaska press will just publish articles that say they're, they're going to take the PFD cut. The government needs the money. It's important to to fund government and just sort of repeat whatever the people and whatever the, the leadership in Juno says about this issue, uh, as opposed to digging into it and saying, hey, this has a hugely regressive effect and it's and it's adversely affecting the overall Alaska economy and adversely affecting the bulk of Alaska families. There's one Alaska Press article on that in, from 2007 when Nat Hertz was, was with the, the Anchorage Daily News. 
which at that time was still called the Alaska Dispatch News, I think. And he wrote an article that delved into that regressive effect. But we, we haven't seen much of any of that discussion out of the press since. Well, and we see a lot of the articles coming that start to talk about some of the other pots of money. I don't, I live in Bristol Bay. We receive power cost equalization and it will be reported that we need to cut the permanent fund dividend because we need to save power cost equalization. And I wouldn't argue for either which one of those programs in particularly, but I've got a family of five and I know that the subsidy that I can receive through PCE that we naturally receive through power cost equalization, even if it was as large as, as it could be an ADAC and I was receiving $500 a month for my house, my family of five, the normal cuts that we have, the cuts to the permanent fund dividend impact me, in my particular example, more than eliminating power cost equalization. And that and that's yeah. at the highest level. It's significantly more when you look at a normal community or, or a community that receives 16 cents on a kilowatt or something like that yeah and some and and so some people will say well it's either it's either pfd cuts or it's power cost equalization and, and that's not that's not the accurate that's not an accurate issue it's either some additional revenue source or power cost equalization or spending or on k-12 or spending on the university or whatever other spending category there is there are other ways to raise revenue than through pfd cuts pfd cuts have the largest adverse impact on the overall Alaska economy and on Alaska families of any of the options. And it doesn't take a family of five uh, for it to be that case. And when you just look at the at the average size Alaska family, which according to the latest, latest census numbers is 2.81, and just, just take 2.81 through all of the income brackets, it has a larger adverse impact than other revenue options on on 80% of Alaska families, the only ones that benefit from PFD cuts because it's such a low low part of their income is the is the top 20%. So, you know, some people want to phrase it as, well, it's either PFD cuts or K-12 or it's PFD cuts or power cost equalization. It's not. It's some revenue source or those, and there are other revenue sources, other ways to raise revenue that have a much lower impact on Alaska families and on the Alaska economy. Well, right before we talk about revenues, because that's, a, that's an important question, There's you, you also speak about this a lot. There is a, I don't know what number it is in the population, 15%, 20% of the population, the voting population right now is going to continue to say cuts only, cuts only, cuts only. And I know that you've talked about this so you're blue in the face, but anybody who's not listening, you do not believe that we have a cuts only approach and explain why, just just why that should, we should just forget about talking about cuts only. Well, the numbers, when you look at the, at the 10-year forecast, and yes, there are likely deficiencies with the 10-year forecast, but it's the best, it's the best we've got. The number of, of the deficit, when you look at the 10-year forecast, on average over the next 10 years, is $1.8 billion. That's, that's assuming spending at inflation, just adjusted for inflation, and it's assuming traditional revenues uh, after the, including a portion of the permanent fund earnings after, after uh, the statutory PFD. The deficit is $1.8 billion. That's 37% of, of spending is ending up as deficits, not covered by traditional revenues. Governor Dunleavy last year tried to cut a little bit under that amount with his initial budget. That budget really went nowhere. The legislature came back with a budget that did some cutting, but not, not an appreciable amount. Governor Dunleavy came back with vetoes that were upheld, but then the legislature came right back and passed another appropriations bill that essentially reversed some of those vetoes. And after doing a nose count, Governor Dunleavy saw, uh, did a few more vetoes, not many, not back to where he had, certainly not back to the original budget, and not even back to where he'd been with the uh, with the first round of vetoes. Uh, did a second round of vetoes, and, and that's the budget that we're operating under today. We ended up with about a billion dollars more in spending after the budget, 900 to a billion dollars more in spending after all that process than where Governor uh, Dunleavy originally uh, started out. I, he, he didn't have the support of 16, which you would need, 16 in the legislature, which you would need to uphold the vetoes, to, to veto back down to the original budget he started with, with the cuts-only budget. I think, that, I think that entire session demonstrates 
that we can't, that we're not going to get 16 in the legislature to support the governor, even if the governor wanted to go there again to do cuts only. I think that entire process showed that we're not going to get 16 in the legislature to support that sort of budget. And we have equivalent budget deficits the 10 years going forward. We really haven't gained on this on this problem uh, as a result of the, the last session. So technically, I mean, I spent five years talking about cuts, 10 years, uh, seven years talking about cuts and how we could do cuts and how we how, you know, identifying areas to do cuts. The university was one of those. Medicaid uh, was was another of those. K-12 was another of those. Technically, we can identify billion a billion eight in cuts, but getting the political support, getting the governor willing to make those cuts and 16 in the legislature willing to back him up, I think last year's session proved that that's just not going to happen. So, Continuing to talk about cut to me, continuing to talk about cuts only and relying on cuts only is is just the predicate for continued PFD cuts because we taught just like last session, we talk about cuts only. The governor tried last year on cuts only. The legislature won't back him up, can't get 16 to back him up. We end up with a billion dollars additional spending, a billion dollars that has to come from somewhere. And we're right back into PFD cuts because the legislature and says, well, we got to have the revenue from someplace. We're going to take it out of the PFD since those are dollars going through our figure, dollars going through our fingers. I, I just, I just think last session showed it's unrealistic that we're going to get there. So we need to be talking about something that is realistic, something that's doable going forward, some resolution that's doable going forward that doesn't automatically resort to the the revenue approach that has the largest adverse impact on the overall Alaska economy and Alaska families. The Alaska electorate electorate is also changing a little bit. You'd have to you would have to do a lot of convincing to me to say that sometime in the next four to six years that half of the Matsu legislative seats don't turn at least to an independent. They'll take those seats and, and you'll have less of a strength there. Fairbanks is trending to be more purple. The Kenai Peninsula is trending to be more purple. Rural Alaska has been solidly blue and southeast solidly blue. Anchorage it is going to be diverse, but South Anchorage conservative strongholds have been trending consistently purple, and that could be a composition of the people that are coming to Alaska to work. Extremely transient state within a couple of years. The entire electorate could change. I mean, Alaska could switch from a very red state to a very blue state quickly with the change of a little bit of industry, I believe. Yeah, and it doesn't even need to do that, Casey. I mean, let, let's assume it stays. let's assume it stays where it is right now. What happened last session was you had a situation in which the governor made cuts to the university, and and some people said, "Great, let's do it." But the bulk of the bulk bulk of the legislature said, "No, those are too deep," and pushed back on the governor. And so the governor reached his accommodation with the university that 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 cut only half of his original proposal and, and did that over three years as opposed to doing it doing it all at once. And that was I mean, he didn't have sixteen to support him. On, on the level of cuts that he initially proposed to the university. Even conservative members, even the ones that, that otherwise say cuts only, there were there were there were there was a group of those that said, Oh, you can't you, we need to cut something, but we can't cut the university. And you go through all the various various subcategories of spending. One I use sometimes is the arts council. It's seven hundred fifty thousand dollars to, to an Alaska Arts Council. If you can't cut the Arts Council, what are you going to be able to cut? And when that came up, there were those in the legislature, including some very conservative members to otherwise conservative members who said, well, you can't cut the Arts Council. He couldn't get 16 to support him on cutting the Arts Council. So even if we don't have a transition to a more purple state, even if we stay exactly where we are, and frankly, even if we roll back to being more conservative, you can't get 16 for the level of cuts across the board that are needed to get you down to a cuts-only resolution. You've always got each of the each of the 60 legislative members have something where they will say, cut everything else, but don't cut this. And, and by the time you go through the 60 legislators and each of them respecting the other, where they where that person where the where a member says you can't cut this and the other fifty nine saying okay well we won't cut that but in exchange for that you can't cut this by the time you go through that process you you don't have a cuts you can't have a cuts only budget so I, I don't I don't think that the transition to a different political 
you know, we may be on the path to transition to a different political outlook, but even if we aren't, I don't think we get to a cuts-only budget. That's a really pragmatic way to approach it. So if there is no cuts-only, we've either got to raise revenue, or the other thing that's overlooked is the state could significantly shift costs to local governments, but there doesn't seem to be much of an appetite for that right now. There's a lot of the state that hasn't formulated boroughs, but a lot of the unorganized borough does not want to formulate a borough right now, plus it would be tough to administer. And... You know, there's just the normal areas, the papers, the Anchorage Daily News running some of the stories about, look, there's some areas in the Matsu that are seem to be relatively urban and they haven't organized into a second or a first class city. They're not putting in normal money into that a first class city would into their schools, etc. So there is some cost shifts that the state could pursue, but there's no real appetite, which leaves revenue and you're an advocate for some form of flat income tax, of which I disagree with you, but let me know why you like the flat income tax. Well, I'm looking for I'm looking for a revenue approach that has uh, the lowest impact, that is the fairest, is the most equitable across all income brackets, isn't uh, isn't uh, 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 heavily weighted toward income one income bracket or another, isn't regressive. Uh, but by the same token, isn't progressive. Doesn't say, well, the top forty percent has to pay for everything, which is what a progressive uh, tax would be. So I'm looking for one that is 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 equitable across all income brackets, and one that has a low adverse impact on the overall economy. Uh, the ICER 2016 study looked at various revenue measures and, and their impact on the economy, what they did to state income and what they did to state jobs. And, and it's that analysis that, that, that led them to the conclusion that the PFD cuts have the largest adverse impact on the economy. I'm trying to find one that has a low adverse impact on the overall economy. And basically, the broader the base, the more dollars tax base that you spread revenue requirement over, the lower the rate that any one person has to pay. Everybody contributes a little bit. No one income bracket or no one industry has to contribute all of it. And that those two drivers, equity and low adverse impact on the on the economy, low impact on the economy, are the two drivers that I use. I, I back in from that to to the, the to the flat tax because a flat tax it takes the same percent from from every income bracket. No income bracket, not the not the low end, not the middle end, not the not the high income brackets pay more as a percent of income. Than any other, they all pay the they all pay the same percent of income, and a flat tax based upon adjusted gross income, which is about twenty five billion for Alaska, is the broadest base that you can that you can find without having to create a whole new tax approach uh, for for Alaska that would be different from the federal approach or any other state approach. And that twenty five billion, if you want to raise five hundred million, which is what one of Governor Dunleavy's proposals is. If you want to raise $500 million on a $25 billion base, that's only 2% uh, of adjusted gross income uh, from all Alaskans. If you wanted to do that, if you wanted to raise that same $500 million from a sales tax or from a surcharge on the federal income tax, the tax rates that you'd have to charge would be a lot higher because your base is a lot narrower, and the impact on the economy from that uh, would be a lot more significant. So it's, it's not... It, it, the drivers are finding something that's equitable and finding something that has the broadest possible base to to, to minimize the impact on any given uh, any given set of taxpayers or any set or any industry and that's and that leads me to the flat tax where i would disagree with the flat tax is in theory i think that the flat tax is plenty fine i would worry about how how long we can keep it flat so you know we'll clearly exempt probably the lowest 10 or 15% will probably exempt Social Security types of payments will probably exempt some pay that's that is accumulated through the military and drill pay. And with our labor unions, there will be some portions of labor costs that are that are exempt from from the incomes. And then I think it provides a mechanism for for, for somebody to say, look, everybody's paying two percent, but we need. For the top earners, we need to just put one little tick mark, you know, this half percent, and, and it becomes a lever to pull all the time. Not necessarily the case, but that would be my worry. Yeah, and, I, and, and that turns it into a progressive tax. I, I, I just, I think there's a basis for a flat tax. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exempt 
I wouldn't exempt low-income earners. That's that's a point of controversy between me and, and and some others who have commented on the issue, but I wouldn't exempt low-income earners. Alaska is different in that we have the PFD. And so it's not like we're saying low-income earners, you contribute and you're not getting anything in return. They contribute and, and, and in return, we protect the PFD. The PFD doesn't, we don't have to tax the PFD in order to raise revenue or we don't tax the PFD in order to raise revenue. We, we, we tax their overall income. In another state that doesn't have a PFD, that doesn't have that sort of distribution of revenue into the private sector, then there's an argument for exempting low-income earners um, uh, or, or low-income families because uh, they don't have another source of income. But here, we're giving them a source of income. We're, the trade-off is you're getting the PFD back in exchange for paying a portion of it, a small portion of it an equal percentage portion portion of it with high-income earners back to the state through uh, through taxes. I think that's a fair trade-off. And so I wouldn't exempt low-income earners, and I wouldn't exempt Social Security because they're getting PFDs also. And I wouldn't exempt the military, resident uh, uh, military, because they're getting the benefit of that also. So I, I don't think those exemptions, given the PFD, I don't think those exemptions are justified, and I think we've got a good argument for keeping keeping the tax flat. Is it, Will there be a pressure for, for raising the, the percentage? Possibly. But there's also a percentage for raising the, the, the level of PFD cuts. And so you're trying to figure out what's the fairest way, if there's going to be increased revenue, what's the fairest way to do it? And the fairest way, to me, is equity across the board with the broadest, broadest possible base, uh, as opposed to saying, oh, well, we ought to just do it through additional PFD cuts which hits middle and lower income Alaska families much, much harder and hits the overall economy much, much harder than than the top 20%. I think there's one other, I don't want to digress too much, but I think there's one other benefit of a flat tax that people sometimes quickly overlook. Under PFD cuts, because so little is taken from top 20% families through PFD cuts, there's really no incentive for the top 20% to try to curb spending. Yes, they, they will say they don't want to uh, increase spending, but when it comes down to, to using their political capital, their lobbyists, their legislators uh, to curb spending, they won't use their political capital to curb spending because there's nothing in it. It won't affect their revenue hardly at all to curb spending, and they'll have to use up political capital they might need for, for some other purpose. If we use a flat tax, on the other hand, everybody pays the same. There's no cost shifting going on. So the top 20% say, yeah, we want to curb spending because it saves us. We don't have to pay additional taxes then. And the bottom 20% say, yeah, we want to curb spending because we don't have to pay additional taxes then. When you, when you start carving out income brackets, when you carve out the top 20% by using PFD cuts so the top 20% doesn't pay much, or when you exempt, have a have a large exemption at the low end and say you don't have to pay tax on the first $40,000 of your income, for example, because we want to protect you from that, then you get pressure for increased spending because from, from those groups because those groups don't have to pay for it. They shove the costs off on somebody else. A flat tax, in my view, and I've written a piece on this if anybody ever wants to dig into it, but a flat tax, on my view, maximizes, optimizes the pressure to, to, to keep spending down because everybody has skin in the game and has the same skin in the game in, in benefiting from, uh, from, from may, or holding spending down. Everybody would pay more if spending went up. Everybody benefits in terms of reduced taxes if uh, spending comes down. It's a really good theory, and I would hope that it would work. The one thing that is true about it is right now I don't think that there's any incentive, like what you're saying, with the top 20%, which is a fluid number, but there isn't right now any incentive for the majority of the affluent people in the state of Alaska relative to government to cut spending, exactly what you're saying. And it's also, if we're going to raise revenues, we kind of have to do it from either by cutting the permanent fund dividend, as you said, through a flat tax or some sort of income tax or through a sales tax. The problem with the sales tax, because I know that there's a lot of people that would advocate for a sales tax. The problem with the sales tax is that there's already so many communities that levy a large sales tax. So if you compare it to other states, states with a statewide sales tax, the sales tax is a very small number or it's 
it's not nearly as big as what you would think. So when we already have communities that have six, eight, nine, ten percent sales taxes, sometimes seasonal, sometimes year round, the state is not going to be able to come in and levy a five or six or seven percent sales tax and keep, you know, they're going to end up having to provide services for the community that the community is already providing. So that one becomes very difficult to administer. Yeah, and and sales taxes also are uh, regressive. They're like PFD cuts in the sense that they take more as a percent of income from middle and lower income Alaska families, even even with exemptions. I mean, some people say, well, you can cure that by exemptions, exempting food and exempting uh, uh, health care, for example, from coverage by the sales tax. And so that helps. Yeah, it helps flatten the curve a little bit. But the truth of the matter is middle and lower income Alaska families spend a lot more of their income buying goods and services that are subject to a sales tax than upper income families. And as a consequence, the burden of the tax falls harder on middle and lower income Alaska families than it does on the top 20%. Sometimes, and and the ICER analysis, the ICER 2016 analysis backs that up. It said after PFD cuts, sales taxes are the second most uh, harmful to middle and lower income Alaska families in terms of revenue. It is... I sometimes refer to the sales tax as the top 20% fallback position. Uh, it's not quite as good for them as PFD cuts. It doesn't doesn't take as low a percent of their income as PFD cuts, but it takes a much lower percent uh, of their income than it does of middle and lower income Alaska families. It pushes most of the burden of middle and lower income Alaska families. And so even from, it, you're, you're quite right on the administration standpoint, but but also from the equity standpoint, sales taxes, I think, are are just a, a different way of going down the road of trying to shove uh, shove these costs off middle and mostly off on middle and lower income Alaska families. Brad, one of the other things that you do with at Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets and your other just your other instructing is that uh, you you make me live up to my to my own standards where where I I like to say that I care about the world as it is, not how I want it to be, and. And I tend to say, okay, I'm not a flat, I, I do not like anything related to the income tax, but I don't like the sales tax, and I don't like the PFD cuts, and I don't like revenue, and I, but we need to balance our budget. And so you realize that you know you quickly run out of bullets if you're not looking at this from every side. So going into this session though, because this is the start of the session this week, the talk is they want they want to change the the statute. I think that's where where we're headed. The permanent fund dividend is headed towards a permanent change. And I do believe that it, any permanent change to the to the statute as it is now without significant backlash in the 2020 election means that the dividend is on its way out soon. That's my guess. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't argue with that. I I, I wouldn't argue that the legislature is going to try to make a change. It, it's it, it, the question is the degree of the change. Some legislators, some legislators are hardcore. They want to preserve the statutory PFD as it is. Some legislators are willing to make some change to the PFD. One of those that, that's been talked about a lot is what uh, the governor's 10-year forecast refers to as POMB 50-50, splitting the POMB draw, the percent of market value draw from the from the permanent fund, splitting that 50 between 50% between Alaska citizens and government. And then you have you have other legislators, Senator Von Imhoff being the, the prime example of that, Senator Diesel being another example uh, over on the Senate side, that want to cut the PFD down even further. Some talk about 25% that that the, that the POMV would be split 25% to citizens, 75% to government. Senator Von Imhoff talks about cutting the PFD down to a leftover approach that is government takes everything it needs out of the out of the out of the earnings stream coming from the permanent fund uh, and the P, and the PFD is whatever's left over after government has uh, government taken has taken whatever revenue they want I think there, there will be an effort to change the, the, the PFD this session the question is is there going to be 21 in the house and 11 in the Senate for for one particular type of change? You might think that there'd be a majority to go to POMB 50-50 because that's better than where we are under the statutory PFD. But a lot of legislators, Senator Von Imhoff, Senator Diesel, doesn't think that that doesn't produce enough revenue for government, that they need to go deeper than that. But when you start swinging down to 25-75, 
you're losing a lot of le- you're losing all the legislators who want to maintain the statutory PFD, and you're losing those who think uh, POMB 5050 is is an acceptable stopping point. So it's a question of where you're going to find 21 and 11. Frankly, I'm not sure we find 21 and 11 uh, for any of those options this session, and and I'm not sure we end up with clarity to the PFD at the end of this session. This I don't point, know that we're going to... At this point, we have, it appears, and I don't like to talk too much about the actual politics of it, but it appears that it's going to take an election really to move the legislature. We're, we are too evenly split. We're not going to get anything done until after this 2020 election, and we get a better picture of where the representation is because we're just way too even, cut down the middle, nobody can agree. Yeah, well, it's... Yeah, and, 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 and frankly, Casey, I think it's going to take a total solution. One of the governor's proposals in OMB, OMB the OMB 10-year plan has five different scenarios, actually six because one's split in two, six different scenarios of the, of the way of, of solving this problem. It goes all the way from cuts only to just taking all of the PFD and, use, and, and adopting the von Imhoff approach. Those are different scenarios the governor, governor's uh, OMB proposal uh, plays out. One of them, I think, has a lot of merit, and it's basically uh, a third, a third, a third. We solved the deficit a third through cuts, which is about $600 million, a third through restructuring the PFD to, to POMB 5050, which produces about $600 million a year more uh, money to government, and then a third through new taxes. And I think that's the kind of solution that we're ultimately going to get to. It's going to be a, an all-in approach that sort of takes uh, takes a little bit from everybody's idea and gets us to approach. The governor calls it a balanced approach. And I think that's what it's going to take. I don't think I don't think that we saw that we can solve one piece of the jigsaw puzzle without solving the remainder of it. Uh, I think we just continue to have have fights about it until we until we get this all in solution done. Well, Brad, I think it would be interesting to have you uh, back in the spring when it's warm and we can have an update, see exactly what happened with the with the uh, legislature. And another thing that we didn't talk about, perhaps we'll talk about it someday in the future, is you have a really interesting idea for capping spending because that's a necessary piece of balancing the state's budget more than likely. Not necessarily do we have to do it, but it is a it's an important step, but... Where do people find out more about Alaskans for sustainable budgets? Is there an area where they can go to get involved, or is it just something that you do, or what can they do? I think the best the best place is to go to the Facebook page, Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets. That's sort of the, the central location where we post various things, uh, where we post everything we're doing. So we post the podcast there. We post uh, our occasional comments. We post blog pieces when we do those there. And um, and since uh, Facebook seems to be a generally accepted means of communication in Alaska, uh, I think that page, Alaskans for Sustainable Budgets, is the best place to, to continue to keep updated about what we're doing. My guest has been Brad Keithley. Thank you for joining me. Hope to talk to you again soon and see you back in Alaska. Casey, thanks for having me. I, I, I enjoyed it.